You are listening to Wait a Minute with Beth and Jessica. Episode 59. I'm Jessica Pearson, Certified Life Coach. And I'm Beth Barnett-Babel, Integrative Nutrition Therapist. We keep our eyes peeled for things in the media or in real life that come from diet culture or that perpetuate diet culture in some way. These are often the subtle ways it creeps in, which is why we're shining a light on it and sharing it with you. Today, we have special guest Addie Broyles, an Austin-based freelance writer, consultant, and tarot card reader. You may know her as a food writer for the Austin American Statesman, where she wrote for 13 years, and it's just so great to have you here. Welcome. I'm so glad to be here. It's so fun to get to see your practices evolve and change. We met first when I was writing about food for the Statesman and dipping in and out of diet culture and the tricky way that modern food writers do that little dance, and it's really, it's wonderful to see the podcast grow and couldn't be more relevant for our era. Thank you so much. I was thinking, I feel like the first time we ever connected professionally was we were reaching out to Beth, a dietitian, to talk about like, are potatoes really as bad as, you know, the world makes them out to be? Gosh, we and, did that with eggs. We did that with meat. You know, it was, uh, uh, I would do this Ask Addy series. And because sorting through all of the diet noise was something that I took pretty seriously as a food writer because I experienced it as myself. People would in cookbooks or in the questions that they would ask me really lean on these sometimes old ideas about food and then also really radical new ideas that, you know, keto is the only diet. And how do I write about a keto cookbook without inserting too much opinion about whether or not I think it is worthy of someone's time. And that's tricky for a layperson like me to to sort out. So I was always happy to reach out to you and get some professional feedback. Oh, good. Thanks. I'm like, was there ever a topic where you're just like, I can't do it? (laughs) Well, you know, veganism. So I started writing about food in 2008 and it was, Mm. you know, a few years after Omnivore's Dilemma and it was definitely after Fast Food Nation, but the zeitgeist of the conversation was local is better and eating whole foods, which, you know, I think is a, is a wonderful thing that Michael Pollan and, and lots of people have really brought into the modern way we think about diet culture However, people also were taking it so far and, you yeah. know, the Forks Over Knives documentary was coming out and, you know, it was hyper plant-based and then it was Soylent and then it was the pendulum would swing the other way and it was paleo and it was all meat and this regenerative agriculture. That's another place where the conversation started going and all these claims about a certain type of milk being better for you. And just really, in order to make that argument, you had to vilify a whole other set of food choices And I could never really get behind a diet that required putting another diet down. And, and, and I just really struggled because I know some people make these sweeping dietary changes and it really changes their lives. And I want to honor that story. And also I don't want to create unrealistic expectations for people who are raising families or taking care of elderly folks or just trying to pay for the groceries with the money that you've got. And And then I know what it's like to feel shame at the grocery store because Mm -hmm. you're not buying organic meat or organic produce. It's no different than the shame that people experience when they put a package of Oreos in their shopping cart because they've been told to eat no processed foods. And so I tried to get kind of above and outside Mm. and beyond that binary. And that was, that became my guiding compass as I wrote about dietary stuff over the years. And as I frankly just eat myself. So maybe I was too radically neutral. (laughs) No, I think neutrality is the best. Thank you for being a neutral headspace for all the people that are trying to decide what extreme should I follow? And then you're an example of neutrality. Yeah, it is very hard to be in a neutral space. I don't think any diet works for everyone. So there's always going to be a diet that works for someone, but that doesn't mean their neighbor is going to be able to do it and get the same outcomes or be able to adhere to it or anything. And a big challenge is that everybody goes through that. And the 11 phases of nourishment, one of them is what it's like the gospel. 
of, you know, and the preacher, you yeah. go through this like preacher <laughs> phase potentially. And so it's like, like I have it right here. People but... will then be like, well, if this worked for me, it has to work for everyone. But that is not possible. The reason why these things work and people make books about them is because that's what worked for them and they were able to be consistent in it and just mm-hmm. let people be. Fanatic phase or fundamentalism. I became a fundamentalist yeah. about school lunches. I thought everybody should be sending their kids to school and eating the school lunches and you couldn't argue with me against it. And then yeah. at a certain point, I had to really respect that for some people, making their kids lunch every day is exactly how they want to be spending their time and, and what is best for that kid and that family. And you know, maybe they don't aren't so into the public equity aspect of it that I am. And oh, I want my daughter goes to too. public school, and I, yeah. you know, encourage her to eat there. But as the year goes on, she's like, I don't want to eat that again. I don't want to eat that again. I don't like that thing. That thing is lit, you know, or, you know, it just becomes, she can only tolerate so much gluten before her skin freaks out. So, you know, she's like, well, (laughs) so there would be days, you know, whole weeks where I'm like, well, you can have this one, but not, you know, like we got to finagle. But by the end of the year, she was like, I don't, I can't, I don't want to eat that again. But you yeah, know, three years that. in, she's like, I still loves that Frito lentil pie that they that they make. She loves that. <laughs> wow, lentils—they really yeah, come along nice no, since the she's 80s like and 90s. Consistently, you know, for the last three years, every time that one comes up on the lunch menu, she's like, "Yes." <laughs> okay. Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, we have so much more to talk about, but we're going to start with our, you know, anti-diet segment and we're going to talk about the Barbie movie. We're going to jump on the Barbie bandwagon. All three of us have seen it. I was reluctant at first to see the Barbie movie because I have conflicting feelings about Barbie, having curly hair, having struggled with weight issues over the years, you know, really rejecting this like American beauty standard of the thin, blonde, straight haired high heel, you know, her feet are all screwed up because of the shoes. You know, I just, I didn't really want to watch something that was going to be pandering to that. But the more I heard about the movie and the positive reviews that said, hey, that is definitely brought up in this movie. And the whole idea of Barbie is being challenged. And Greta Gerwig has not shied away from that, I thought was really fantastic. Um, my food perception of it is None. there's there's actually no well, food there's in the movie. Thing. Like, she's when, like, it's all like when the she's fake. eating. It was the best, you it's know. And then like she, goes, she tea, pretends right? to like do something with the butter, and then she pats her mouth. I was like, oh my god, that's hilarious. But there could there was there was no addressing of the yeah. idea of appetite, sexual mm-hmm. appetite, nourishment appetite. She wanted to be seen and wanted to be real and mm-hmm. have an app. She had an appetite for feelings and and living a more vibrant or you know feelings focused life. But that idea of hunger really ne- never came up. And when I think mm. about Barbie, I think about restrictive eating, and I think about all of the eating disorders that probably stemmed from the Barbie mania, at least during the 60s, 70s, 80s. You know, my mom was born in '54, so she was raised with pretty much with Barbie as well. And so, and then she got into Weight Watchers. And so I'm a second generation Weight Watchers household. And so, you know, the Barbie ideal was still the playbook that we were playing by. I didn't even notice the food because there really wasn't food. I mean, yeah, I noticed the, you know, the the toast popping out on that kind of thing. But I think what stood out for me was, I mean, obviously just, you know, the funness of it. I wasn't like that into Barbie as a kid. I remember having a Barbie when I was about five. And I'm sure like explicitly, I don't really remember thinking about her body, but I'm sure the messages were given without me thinking too hard about it. I guess I just, I liked the part about humanity and just the feelings part of it. It's like, yeah, humanness comes with the sadness and the hard times. And it's not just about being mm. happy and, you know, perfect all the time. So I don't know. I, I feel like that that part resonated with me. Greta Gerwig does, you know, mostly these like independent films and she talks about, you know, some of these offbeat things. So I thought she actually did a great job of like taking something super mainstream, super diet culture and then having to challenge that, but also keeping it light and fun. So yeah. I don't know. I enjoyed it. But yeah, I don't have much food takeaway. <laughs> yeah, not any, uh, you have any takeaway be- oh. other than I found humor in how it's not real. 
in what she does, she drinks and she doesn't. And then later on she does, she's offered water, I think in the boardroom, which that whole Will Ferrell boardroom thing. But overall, I also, I had Barbies as a kid. I didn't play with them a lot because I had a lot of stuffed animals and they would do their, they had a lot more interaction going on in my room. Uh, so the plays that would happen with stuffed animals, because I had so many that I really, you know, Barbies were just part of the scene. I was an only child. So, the community. <laughs> so I had a lot of time to spend hanging out in my room with all my, my community of, of, of inanimate objects. So I say that in that I enjoyed the movie overall. So I went with my 10, almost 11 year old daughter and my husband, my son was still at camp. So we went without him, but he's he's 14 and he would like to go see it. And we all really enjoyed it. I thought it was really important for dad to come and and see the whole message. And I, I don't like how it's being politicized. You know, it's being, you know, one or the other. I do think that the overall arch of it was really interesting. And I love Kate McKenna's character as weird Barbie. And then how she, you know, they apologize at the end. Sorry that we made you, you know, that we called you weird Barbie and all that other stuff. I just really appreciated the overarching theme of it. And I just didn't feel like it was worth digging in there and dissecting all the things that I have seen on, on social media about how, Oh, it just felt like this. Somebody wrote that I, I saw, Oh, it was exhausting. All the feminism and blah, 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 blah. And this was by a female. And I was like, okay. I mean, everybody gets to have their opinion, but it's like, we really need to be that upset about everything all the time. Yeah, the rage. Yeah. We're addicted to so I was the rage like, machine. Well, I thought it was a nice message for both. It's like we can't have a, a world where just women are ruling everything, and we also can't have the flip side where men are doing all of it. And we saw both of those mm-hmm. comical depictions of it in that movie, and then we got to see, well, it's not one or the other. It can be both. Yeah. What I loved about it the most was that here was this great primer on feminism, right? Our lived lives for many years has been, at least mine has, fighting for the right to show up and be seen as a multifaceted person. This was long before I became a parent and a food writer. I wanted to be both sporty spice and sexy spice. (laughs) You know, don't make me choose. But what I think was even more remarkable about it, I mean, of course we needed a feminist primer movie like that, but the ancestral part at the end that left me ugly crying, that is what I think the country really needed was talking frankly about death and about standing on the shoulders of giants and the relationships that we have with our mothers and that we are changing and sometimes they are not changing and we see that as a failure and that is not Mm -hmm. something to be disappointed in. And the grandmother thing, I, I think that I lost my grandmother five years ago and it still is one of the hardest losses that I've faced in my life because it was a different kind of maternal love. And to watch her walk arm in arm with Rhea Perlman just left me in a puddle because it makes me think about the ways that I walk with my grandmothers and my ancestors today through Mm -hmm. my life, arm in arm with them, Mm -hmm. even though they are no longer physically here. And that has changed my life. That's changed the course of my work. It's changed how I parent. It's changed my sense of self, and it's why on my business card it says future <laughs> ancestor. <laughs> I love that. Well, I saw something you had written about, you know, maybe banana pudding is the only portal we have to our grandmother, and how that is food oh, yes. can be such a portal to the past and to our culture and our community. And sometimes in diet culture, we have forgotten some of this. We've demonized the banana pudding. You know, Mm -hmm. it's got too much sugar. It's processed food. But it's like sometimes it's just not about the health component. It's about the connection that we have to our Let's make the healthy Nilla wafers to put in banana pudding. I don't know if your family uses Nilla wafers, (laughs) but our family did. So I'm just like, let's clean up Nilla wafers. That's what I imagine diet culture or in culture doing to banana pudding. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and I think it's, there's, there's like the positive and the negative, right? Like I saw a lot of restrictive eating patterns in both my mother and my grandmother and my grandmother, we lived with my grandmother for a while. She, and then my mom moved back in with her for the last 10 years of her life. So I got to also see her appetite change and her 
sweet tooth was always there and that, you know, ice cream was what she found appealing to eat. And so she would eat that and she had freed herself from some of those other restraints, but the lingering tentacles of the diet culture of even mm-hmm. her youth were still there. And, um, and to honor that sometimes when I, gosh, it's like, I'll, bo- I'll pour a bowl of Cheez-Its for myself, which is exactly what I watched my mom do to for portion control, because even to this day, if there's a box of Cheez-Its, it's a danger zone. And she will speak that this is not, I need to put this in a bowl or else I will eat the whole box, you know? And so even today, when I have these ingrained patterns, I can, without judgment, sort of hold space for, thanks mom for teaching me the words portion control all those years ago. Mm -hmm. And also shakes fist at all of the trauma of the fat free brother and the count. I mean, I would count out Cheez-Its. I would, you know, and that type of overregulation, that's also part of my ancestral lineage. And I can, uh, without judgment, just sort of honor that they were doing the best that they could. And now I can try to find some freedom around that for myself. That's interesting because I think, and I teach this too with clients, like an action of putting chips in a bowl, right? To me, that can be really neutral, but then it's like, what is all the other chatter that's coming with it? So like, it could just be like, yeah, I want to put the chips in the bowl to like, better than my counter versus like yeah versus like versus like uh well because we'll do it for mindfulness too right because sometimes if I sit here with a bag of almonds or a bag of chips and I'm working or something it's like I'm just not being mindful with it so how can I be present with something part of being present might be putting it into a container and like looking at this beautiful bowl and you know making this a new experience Mm -hmm. and like that's a super neutral action but this action can also become something negative or something overthought and disordered you know based off how we think about the action so it's not like diet culture is just a set of actions it's really the way that we're thinking about the things that we're doing and so it's maybe not even the action of the bowl that was passed down it's like the thought of we do this because if we don't we will eat the Mm -hmm. entire box and that is bad and to Mm -hmm. me that's like the diet culture that's so good that is such a great message that is getting out there into the world and that that neutrality is a choice that we make you know just like choosing you know intuitive eating and choosing to follow your body's hunger you know i had two breakfasts this morning because i was Mm -hmm. up really early taking my husband to the airport and by nine o'clock i was ready to eat again and i ate again because I knew I was going to be talking to you all and I would want to have that energy in my body. And I'm just so grateful that we can talk about shame in this way. I mean, this is where like, you know, all of the shame work that Brene Brown and all the other folks are doing to then find the intersectionality with nutrition, you know, and feminism. These are the conversations that I want to be part of in 2023. And it doesn't make any sense to sort of split hairs about the snack wells, although it's fun to like tell those stories. (laughs) (laughs) Whose fault was it that the sugar industry took over? I just, uh, I just keep saying, yay, capitalism, and that's pretty much. I'm just like, that's just where, yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's just we pretty much just let that slide, free market, and then if we we you know hone that in just a little bit more, yeah. And then we're all susceptible to market all day, every day, all day, every day, from restaurant food to grocery store food to prescription drug ads and. And Instagram celebrities fashion and just being conscious of that. That's the first step of being aware of how it impacts you is just sort of seeing, oh yeah, this, I'm really drawn to the packaging, you know, and this new food item and that's why I want to buy it. And then I get a dopamine hit and just watching that with, from a neutral perspective is a really empowering move. Yeah. The, as you talk about the intersection of feminism and current diet culture or just self-care. I think it's a confusing space. We have a lot of people that come to us that are like, I want to love and accept my body. I want to, you know, not adhere to trying to change my body for my husband or for men or for whoever. And like my doctor's also telling me that I need to improve my health. And I I do just want to maybe feel better in my body. Mm -hmm. And that can be like a really confusing space where we're talking Mm -hmm. about like, it shouldn't just be for weight loss. But weight loss is also okay. Like, can you speak to your own experience with that? Goodness, yes. So I um, want to acknowledge the straight size privilege that it comes with this white hetero cis body. And um, so when I tell the story of my my fat years, and I try to reclaim that word as I have sort of been trying to follow the fat influencers of the world. She's all fat is one of my favorite podcasts in this space mm. to 
you know, undo the fat phobia to, because I had always avoided that word. But so I had some fat years during my college years. Um, I'd been a varsity athlete in high school and then suddenly went to <laughs> college and was doing varsity level drinking and late night pizza eating. And, uh, you know, my weight changed dramatically mm -hmm. over the course of just a few months. And it was a pretty stark change for my family to see. And I heard some pretty hurtful things from some family mm -hmm. members when I came home for, for Thanksgiving that year that really stuck with me. Um, and that also started a five year real struggle with weight. And I was exercising like crazy. I was doing the, I remember being in my dorm room, eating saltine mm. crackers and drinking lime diet Coke, this very specific memory of like supplementing meals with like these zero calorie, yeah. not fulfilling <laughs> types of foods. And just so, so frustrated and so desperate. I could have really used somebody like you to help me recognize that there are lots of th there were lots of things going on in my body at that time and and honestly it, it didn't really change until I had kids way earlier than expected so the year after I graduated from college I became a parent and my metabolism kind of caught up or maybe my lifestyle I'm not sure what all happened during that year or so but I didn't really have to work to lose that weight but I got to the weight that I've been at and thankfully the scale is in the house but I have figured out, you know, I weigh myself maybe once or twice a year and have a pretty healthy relationship with that particular measuring device, but know that it, you know, I struggle and have a trauma around counting calories, counting protein, carbs, really paying attention to the scale, you know, where it's like, okay, if I work out, if I see the number of the calories on the treadmill and then do the math and then try to like, mm. I would just became obsessive around that stuff. And I associate that as much with my overweight years as I do anything else. But I also remember what it felt like in my body. And I, it, it wasn't fun to, to struggle to find clothes that I felt like looked flattering. And you had asked earlier in the, before we had got on about my relationship with food and, you know, generally speaking, I would say that the first thing is I love food, <laughs> but the second thing is I respect it. I respect that food is here to keep me alive. And also it is something that I don't want to take lightly and consume mindlessly and take for granted that today I can pretty much eat what it is that I want. But I think it's also because I figured mm -hmm. out how to listen to my body about when I'm full. And I don't betray that. Birthday parties, I'll eat three bites of cake and people will make comments about why don't I finish the cake? And these are people our age, yeah, ladies. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just like, and I've learned how to realize that that's not about me and I'm not going to eat to meet anybody else's standards. And also when I'm hungry, I'm hungry. That's such a good point. There's a lot of people projecting their own food stuff on everyone else. And I think that that's one of the biggest challenges for a lot of people trying to figure it out for themselves, because we also know at the root of some of this like emotional eating behavior is people pleasing. And so then it gets real tricky when you're trying to find your own self-confidence and listen to your body and then p other people are making comments, um, whether they're positive or negative. I mean, it's also the trap of like, oh, you look so good. You've lost so much weight and like how that will instantly be like, oh, thank you. But it's like, ah, like I don't want that to be the thing either. Or, hey, you know, like what you said about maybe your family members on that first Thanksgiving home. I also experienced that. My mom was like, Oh, you got like a belly here, you know? And I was just like, I mean, it wasn't really that mean to say, but just the fact that she noticed and pointed it out, I was just like, Ugh. so yeah. the, the things that other people say we also do teach is actually can be a neutral thing. Mm -hmm. If we learn how to not listen and learn not to believe. Because when you know how to believe what you want to believe about you, it's a lot easier to say, yeah, I'm good with three bites. Like, there's no reason why. I just, I'm good with three bites. It doesn't have to be like, I'm on a diet or here's what I'm doing or not eating. Mm -hmm. I just, I enjoyed the cake and I'm done. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, and I confess to being super judgmental when I'm in spaces where people are just talking about their diets all the time. And I've been around many tables where for 30 minutes, we're just talking oh about different <clears throat> dietary restrictions. And sometimes it's health related, cutting down on salt because of kidney problems or whatever. But it's just, I could not care less, honestly. And it's just like the least interesting thing to talk about because it is so personal for each of us. And not to say it's a taboo subject and we shouldn't talk about it with people because I also think that extreme is probably not good, mm -hmm. but we, it becomes part of our personality our working out and our dieting. And I want to challenge us to 
go beyond that, right? So what what's behind what's what are those layers all about? You know? Yeah. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. Beth and I fully agree, and we've said this many times. Like, nothing is more boring to me like than somebody telling me about their diet at a party. Yeah. I'm like, please, let's not do this here. So I've I come armed with like new questions, things to how can I pivot when this conversation comes up? Or you know, sometimes with close friends, I'll just listen and I don't say anything. I remain very neutral about it. Mm-hmm. But um, it's one of those things where it's just the topic, like we're trained to want to talk about this or something. Which is interesting though, because as I was diving into all the things you've written about, you know, we talked about the connection to ancestry, but also you wrote about like food inequality and food production and distribution. And you mentioned, you know, Michael Pollan and some of these other food writers. And I just thought, you know, a lot more even. Uh, Digging into all this research, I'm like, are you going to write a book about food? (laughs) No, I've been doing this zine. So the Feminist Kitchen is a Substack newsletter where I developed it. So it Mm. it actually dates back to 2010 when I first had my second kid and I was going to go on maternity leave. And I knew I would want to write about some of the things that we've been talking about that weren't necessarily things that I felt like putting in the paper at the time. My, My writing did become more I guess political, you might call it over the years. And I would write more about equity and I would write more about grief and the inner journey and like Mm -hmm. the story about the saltine crackers and the lime Coke. Like that's exactly a kind of column that I would have written, but I tried, I developed Mm. that voice on a WordPress platform called the feminist kitchen. And then when I knew I was leaving the paper, I decided to move that content over to a Substack and then continue writing. So, and then oh, every fun. two months, every six months, I put out a zine. So this is the first copy of the zine. The theme is birthdays. Uh, the second one will come out in December, and that one is about fabric, metaphorical, right. more metaphorically and literally speaking. And so instead of focusing my energies on on a book right now, my idea is to publish ten or fifteen or twenty of those zines over the next decade. And that be sort of the the place where these chapters of my life and of my writing can can live together. I don't know if I have enough to say about body. Maybe I do. I mean, this conversation is making me realize that I, I do. But I think I'm hesitant to get into sustainable agriculture and food systems at large, simply because I feel like there are people who are not, it's not about being just more qualified than me, but I write about where I live, you know, and where I live is in this journey of the lived experience of being a human mm-hmm. where these systems are at play. And so it's taking off the journalist hat that wants to go in and find out about how food banks are, aren't corrupt and like what we're actually doing to reduce hunger and to get people to expand their minds, to think about hunger in new ways. And even to just raise awareness about equity. And like, I just published something on my website today about which of the Titanic museum in Branson, Missouri, where I supp- surprisingly mm. left with some new thoughts about immigration. Because a thousand people on that ship were immigrating here and just like my own ancestors did. And you either have people who immigrated here or you are native and indigenous. And so what I'm trying to do is, as I talk about my unpacking of what it means to be the great, great granddaughter of immigrants, to encourage other people to be thinking about that in their own ways as we imagine and work towards a more equitable and understanding world Mm -hmm. where we can look at the current border issues. My politics are well known at this point, but... Anyway, so where that comes into the body stuff is being willing to write about some of these kind of touchy issues around my grandmother and my mom and and just, I try not to tell their stories, but I can certainly write about what it was like being the tomboy who had a lot of internalized Mm. misogyny as a young person. And so each one of those is a little thread that I can pull and tell in on the Substack. And so it's been a fun challenge on the Substack. And so it's been a fun challenge. That's for sure. Challenge. That's for sure. But it's nice to have the carte blanche to kind of write about things in some really out there ways that, you know, a typical magazine or newspaper to try to convince an editor that some of these stories make sense. Sometimes it's easier just to write the story and just publish it. So, I mean, that's the beauty today's time you can self-publish anything totally. which is sometimes not amazing amazing thing you know? <laughs> yeah sometimes not exhausting i know well and the content listen the content that you all are making right like we had yeah. a podcast at the paper until we ran out of steam to do it and I, I don't know i just i really love that entrepreneurs can create can think like journalists and to put meaningful content out there So I totally 
sympathize with the overwhelm around content and around the never ending beast of mm-hmm. the, the world that is the internet and social media. And it's just, it's never satiated. Right. We, and we are never satiated. And so you all are experts <laughs> in this world of satiation. What do we do when tempted with all the things? And also being like a kid in the candy store where you're like, I want this, I want this, I want this, I want this. And then you feel mm-hmm. sick because you, you know, yeah. tried to eat too much. Um, but I have felt so nourished in this conversation this morning because it has caused me to really slow down and think about the greater mm. why of what it is that I'm doing. And that's sort of my deeper practice and, uh, motivation for my tarot work is getting people to, uh, slow down and look with more clarity about what they're doing, how they're spending their lives, how they're building relationships and being aware of the patterns that they have, yeah. the good, the good, the bad, and the ugly, in, um, you know, the tarot has four suits, um, the four minor arcana suits. And so these are these four aspects of your life that are related with the different elements. And the one that traditionally had to do with money is the pentacles. And I have always, or the coins, and I have always read the pentacles as wealth in all its forms. Mm -hmm. So health is wealth, time, traveling, going to art museums makes me feel really wealthy. Yeah. Right. So it's like going on a hike with my family. Like there's so many things that I could think Mm -hmm. of that are worth my time that don't necessarily put money in my bank account, but they put money in a, in a spiritual account. And so then you think, well, with all of those suits, you get to the king and the queen, which are the masters of the suit. And I always challenge people to think about, you know, what is the fullest expression of that really mean? And for me, when I think about pentacles, I think about, you know, why do we do this work in the first place? You know, why do each of you have the businesses that you have? Why do, why are we doing these TikToks? Why are we, why do I sit down on my computer and write my little feminist kitchen? Why do I even do the tarot work? I also do dog walking and like all kinds of random stuff. And um, for me, I've settled in on, you know, I think that we're all leaving a legacy so that after we are gone, our names will be on someone else's lips saying, this is what this person mm-hmm. did in their life. And it will be, and it is something small, very small. And, you know, I don't know what people might say about me, but I'd like for it to be something along the lines of, you know, she got us to look at our lives in new ways. And she, um, you know, was eager to connect people and, um, and be supportive. And, you know, she was such a cheerleader for all of the food people in the world. And, you know, um, you know, that's the legacy that I want to leave. And so every day when I go to work, if I can remember mm-hmm. that I'm building this endowment fund right. that might not have a cent in it, but when I when I go, I, I will leave it, and I might not have a scholarship with my name on it or a building with my name on it, but my name is on it, mm-hmm. and so that that helps me lose my cynicism about and my exhaustion. You know, it helps me deal with the exhaustion that comes with being a right. content creator and just being a human. I mean, <laughs> I got I got a lot of years left. Yeah. Well, it's coming back to the gratitude and abundance of it all, which I, I have to do that work on myself with the money and everything else, but also, like you said, in the business. And then coming back to the kind of the North Star of what is nourishing me, whether that's the food or the work or whatever. I mean, Beth and I, we originally we did this podcast weekly. It was and we're too just much. Like, I was like, I can't sustain myself. <laughs> And do a good job. I was like, this will then end up being yeah. something that I hate, but I want and I, but I really enjoy the, what the podcast is about. So I was like, I can't hate the podcast. Yeah. So we gotta, we gotta dial it down. <laughs> yeah. Or even my, my hair stylist was asking me like, well, how do you feel about social media? Cause she, you know, as a, business owner. She's an entrepreneur. She's on social media doing the things. And so we got to have like a kind of fun conversation about it. And it's like, yeah, it's a love hate, but I just, it's like, I I have to come to terms with like, it's okay that I'm not posting three times a day. Mm-hmm. And like, just because I'm not feeding the algorithm or feeding the social media machine at the end of the day, I'm not trying to be an influencer. That's not where I want to get my coins, right? That's not it. It's like, I'm, you know, I'm trying to just have a presence. So when people find us, they can get a taste of what we're like. So yeah, maybe they want to work with me. Maybe they don't. And if that means I only post on our wall once a week, like that's what it is. And I do stories because that's what comes natural to me. And like, that's fine. (laughs) So... Well, one of the other great teachers in my life right now is Adrienne Marie, Marie Brown, who did Emergent Strategy in 2018. And it's this, she's a black queer activist who, she also did a book called Pleasure Activism, 
which mm-hmm. she also became somewhat known for. But in Emergent Strategy, she shares eight principles that we that she's pulled from nature, mm-hmm. biomimicry, that we can apply to our work in society as we build an emergent future that has more equity for more people. And the very first one is small is all. And I cling to that when I feel overwhelmed mm-hmm. and think it has to be more, 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 because I have the more monster in me. But the small is all. So, you know, just us emailing about the podcast, knowing deep inside that there is a ripple effect to that, that will not only benefit me, but also my community at large. I'm big into buy nothing. And so I'm always giving stuff away. I It's so great. I, and I do admin work. So I'm like, people will request to join and, you know, I sit there and like let people in the group. And then like I deliver meals on wheels on Fridays and it's like, those things don't make me any money. They don't, I'm not really posting about them. So it's not like I'm getting social capital from it, but I get an internal boost to my coins and, and letting that be enough. And, you know, that's mm-hmm. where coaching has been so helpful for me. I mean, there's so many wonderful resources of little quips and tidbits about like, you know, enoughness is a choice. And um, have I done enough work in the day? Well, if there's always enough time for the right work, which is something I got from a strategy, then I'm always doing exactly what I need to be doing. And it helps me feel so much more centered, especially as we face climate change and like political upheaval. And there are days when I don't feel good about nothing that's Mm -hmm. going on in the world. And that emergent strategy book is the only thing that brings me back Mm. to my my feet on the ground. I'm back in my body. You know, she's a somatic practitioner as well. So, you know, feeling that even as I grow older and, you know, I'm, I just turned 40. And so I just think a lot about, you know, what the next 50 years of my life are going to look like. And I know that I'm going to have to accept at some point, maybe body functions that change. And how do I still feel whole when my body changes and have access to that level of okayness and enoughness, even on my last day? I mean, I, I really do think about that a lot, not in a morbid way, but in a if I practice that mm-hmm. now, like I broke my foot this summer, <laughs> if I practice accepting this limitation and looking around somatic work, looking around to stabilize myself and to regulate my emotions, if I can do that for things like a broken foot, then I can do that. Like when my dad died, I can do that when my kids leave the house. There's these wildfires that are going on right now. Like it's yeah. always something. Yeah. Re- I love the reorienting. That was definitely a tool from somatic therapy that has helped me a lot. It's just like, just look at the wall, just look at the painting, take a breath. It's going to be okay. Or, you know, it's, but yeah, like when you, we, we watch the news or we see something like the world is on fire, it's the hottest summer on the planet. We're like, well, I guess I can recycle this can. I know. I'm always Hopefully like, but the plastic is just going <laughs> in the trash and it's not doing anything. We just keep making more plastic. <laughs> <laughs> it's I definitely use a yeah. version of small is all or all is small however you said that because that is it's the only way I it? can yeah. literally make it through because there are just moments where it just feels so big and you when you I really think about the vastness of space and about all of it and then I think about how big the earth really is and then how small I am but my brain a part of my brain thinks that I am so big and amazing and I'm like well I mean I don't want to be like I'm nothing but we're not everything and yes what I do does have a ripple effect with you know how I raise my kids and how I you know show up with my clients and how I can continue to grow a community of sorts of of being kind to ourselves and to the earth but in the end I have to just kind of be like no a little bit is okay not everything has to be grand and I have to keep reminding myself that that is one function of my brain that just really believes that. And so many people continue to just really live their day by my, that, that part of their brain where everything is just has to be so grand. Yeah. And we teach the 1% all the time. You know, when people are like, I want to be someone that works out. It's like, well, like, that's cool. But like, let's start with a five minute walk, you know, because in their mind, it's like, I got to join CrossFit and go five times a week. Mm -hmm. And if I'm not working out an hour a day, then I'm nothing, you know, and it's like, 
I don't know, let's start with 1% and see how it goes because that's where you get your inertia and your momentum and it adds up. Walking five minutes a day mm-hmm. is better than yeah, none. So I've been doing so. my seven-minute exercise small is all. challenge to myself. So it's been great because I was becoming – the yeah. summer has been a little bit challenging. I don't know why, but I, I think it's the heat. So if I'm not working, then I've been just kind of laying down somewhere, floor, the couch, outside <laughs> just like I can't function so I was like oh I haven't moved my body in quite some time so I was like all right seven minutes I can do seven minutes every day let's I can I can do that and some days I have to break those seven minutes up into you know a minute and a half and I'm like that's fine that's all I got today I, I got this message again I don't know if you got it okay all right well, we're just gonna hope for the best so I don't want to let you leave Addie without talking about the death card because the name of your tarot business is don't fear the death card. So mm-hmm. how did, how did that come up for you? Well, I, I experienced a really intense season of death and it was both my grandmother. Well, I got, I think it started probably when I got divorced uh, in 2014. And then not very long after that, my grandmother started her decline. And then my dad at the same time had got diagnosed with prostate cancer and they gave him mm. two years and he lived 18 months. And it was just a, a, a tough, terrible time that where the tarot actually was something that I turned to just on a personal level. And, and I actually uh, listened to a podcast for probably two years before I even got my first deck. It was called Tarot for the Wild Soul. And it was the first time I heard tarot as a way to sort through what is happening today as opposed to what is happening in the future and got me out of this thinking that it was a predictive mm-hmm. or divination tool it allowed me to see the, more clearly the cycles that I would, that I, not only I was going through mm-hmm. right now, but that I would always be going through and helped me see that, you know, when my dad died, I suddenly joined thousands of people who came before just in my family line who had lost a parent and I didn't feel so alone. And I realized that the day my child was born was a death of my single years and my youth and my all that. And that the day I got divorced, a, a new part of me was born you know, I got married earlier this year and I lost my best friend on the same day. Not she chose to leave the friendship. She didn't die. (laughs) Something, you know, and that bittersweetness of you can't have death without life and vice versa was just something I could no longer ignore. And so there was a time, I guess I was probably really just about ready to leave the paper when I pulled the death card and I thought, yes, yes, I'm so excited. And I thought that's, that's not common. And so the don't fear the death card kind of came to me. And so I decided to, you know, I was doing a lot of grief therapy at the time and it just helped me uh, center grief in my life in a really positive, beautiful, joy-filled way. And I think that's why the the Barbie movie resonated so much with me and why I, you know, try to bring up grief as often as I can because I think it's a beautiful thing and have the willingness to look at, you know, my own life and the things. Mm -hmm. It helps me live in today. You know, my husband is quite a bit older than I am and I don't know how long we have, but I don't know how long any of us have. So yeah. it has just totally changed my life in terms of my my happiness and my access to joy and contentment on a regular basis, mm-hmm. you know, by centering death in my life, which feels odd, but I'm going with it. Yeah. I mean, I think about our culture and death quite a bit because what is American Fear culture it, and death? Don't run as far <laughs> away from it as possible. It is, you know, the worst I mean, that's why aging is also maybe mm-hmm. so culturally very scary, right? We're just like, we don't die. We don't age. Let's just ignore mm-hmm. it and pretend like it doesn't happen. And I had messaged you because I saw that don't fear the death card. And I was like, well, I actually am kind of afraid of it because my high school girlfriends and I, we, we always gather at least twice a year, but usually once around Christmas and a friend had gifted another friend tarot as like one of our like white elephant gifts and we busted it out and doing some cards and two of the girls got the death card. And within a year two, one of them actually died. And then the other one, her husband died. And that was like, Oh, this is accurate. Yeah. yeah. We were like, okay, we're done with tarot. No more tarot parties, you know, just because it, it felt very like, Oh, you know, and, but as you were talking, I was just thinking like it was it's really like the fear of death 
we just are not prepared to deal with death in our culture and it's kind of a bummer. And I've been watching Coco with my son, you know, every once in a while. And I just love that movie. And, you know, I just want to have that as a culture for me, we're like, maybe we should put up pictures of our, you know, dead ancestors so that we can honor them and remember Mm -hmm. them and have that legacy so that they're on our minds. And like, why don't we all do that? (laughs) Well, because it's so freaking painful. So I don't know how old you were, Jessica, when all that happened, but I was really shaped by the year that I had my son, my oldest, my best friend from college died and in a super unexpected way. And it was when I met capital D death, that's how I describe it. And mm-hmm. I ask my clients, you know, do, do you know what I mean when I say that, you know, and they either do or they don't. And it is a before and an after. And in, especially when young people die, especially when it doesn't make any sense and there's no logic to it. And, you know, so grief and birth for me started when I, you know, also when I became a parent and I spent my twenties doing this work without mm-hmm. having any language around it. I, I remember I grieved like a widow because like, this friend and I really had that type of relationship. You know, I, I always thought we were going to end up together and well, we didn't. And, and that learning how to live with that and somehow make peace with that, even though that's the absolute last thing I wanted to do, that was really the only way through it. Cause I think I, there was a, a desire to resist it for a long time of like, I don't want this. But when I was, I was pregnant with Julian, I was actually two months pregnant with Julian when he died. And then I was four months pregnant with Julian before I found out, which is a whole other mm. being in touch with your body situation. Cause I just was not, to, not, I was too consumed with grief, honestly, to be aware of it. But when I chose to become a parent in that moment, I think that was sort of inviting death to, to sit at the dining room table with me. And it's been there ever since. And so every day that I've got with my family or with my friends, you know, I just, I try not to take it for granted and feel like maybe one of the reasons I'm here is to shepherd uh, other people through grief experiences. And those are the most poignant columns that I wrote at the paper were when I finally decided to just tear down that wall and write about grief from a, a raw and healing place and synthesize it enough, but also like be brave enough to put it out there. I would hear from people and they were just like, you know, your story is not my story, but I see something mm. of myself in your story. And yeah, I don't feel yeah. so I don't feel so alone. I don't think anyone's immune to grief. We're all going to experience it at mm. some point in our lifetime and yet we don't really talk about it or figure out how to yeah. deal with it and then to circle it back to food, you know, it's like how do we manage difficult feelings? We're drinking, eating, scrolling, whatever we got to do to escape this icky vibration in our body that we just are not comfortable feeling. It's a sensation that we don't want to feel. So we run from it and a lot of us are going to food. So yeah, it's so true. And it's so funny that it's like we could do that to a, a negative degree. And then we also put up on a pedestal comfort food. Totally. In some ways, it's great. Like you, if you have a close family member that dies, people bring you food because feeding yourself in that moment mm-hmm. is really challenging, right? You're not going to like go prepare a meal when you're in this intense, immediate grief. So in some ways, it's a beautiful place to go, right? And then how does it get kind of dis? Or, I mean, I don't want to say disordered. I don't know what the word is, but at some point, it becomes unhealthy. Think about watering a plant, right? It's like the, the plant gets really sad if you don't water it, and if you overwater it, it also gets really sad. Yeah, we're just trying to do our best because we want things to last forever. And like Esther Perel says, the measure of the success of a relationship is not its longevity. And so, to accept the businesses close and careers change, and we sell houses and we bury pets. And we say goodbye to friendships. Those things are, I'm the first to want to resist doing any of those. And it's never my first choice. But then when I'm in it and I go through it, I think there's got to be a blessing in this somewhere. And so I'm going to look for it. Mm -hmm. And we find what we're looking for. Mm. You all a question. Have you seen, you know, we started started this podcast talking about the Barbie movie where there's not a lot about eating. And, uh, you know, there's a lot about addressing death, which, you know, I just loved Ugly cried like you, ugly cried like you cannot believe. But what movies or TV shows are out there, or even cooking shows or YouTube creators are out there who are really modeling this kind of dialogue? You know, I'm thinking like I did not see it, but because I won't watch The Whale, Um, I think that's the opposite of what we're talking about. I started that one. I couldn't. 
push it. Um, but like, are there any movies that address, you know, disordered eating in a way? Like, I, I'll never forget the Sex in the City where Miranda throws out the cake and then like puts the soap on it. So she yeah. won't keep eating the cake. Uh, I don't know if that's good either, but. Yeah, I don't know. I've kind of turned my back on foodie culture a lot. Like, so when I was looking kind of at your archives and looking at like, wow, you've, you've talked to Alton Brown, Rachel Ray. Like, these are all these people that like I, you know, 15 years ago really mm-hmm. admired and followed. And I felt like I had this hobby of being a foodie and my hobby was eating and trying new restaurants. And then like at some point I just was like, I don't really want food as the center as my source of desired entertainment. And I just kind of like one day kind of stopped doing it. And so I actually don't really follow a lot of chefs anymore. Like Beth and I met in culinary school. (laughs) So like we both loved food so much. We went to culinary school to try to like emulate this. And I think there was a part of me that thought maybe someday I'll be a celebrity chef. Right. And like, I just was like, I don't Mm want to do that anymore. That just, to me, it was like, what was underneath that was the emotional side of things and why do I love food and why do I love cooking and helping people? And it was like, it actually was never about the food for me. I mean, it was at some point, at least that's what I thought. And as we dove deeper and deeper into our work, especially with clients who were like, just tell me what to eat, give me a meal plan, I'll do it. And then they, they didn't do it. And I was like, (laughs) it's not actually about the food. (laughs) Wow. And so oh, I'm so glad you said that. I just I could not agree more about the and I've had such a similar journey mm-hmm. away from what I would call foodie culture. And I know it still exists. And there are kind of other people who've taken up that mantle and who are just, God bless, like the America's Test Kitchen people who test those recipes 18,000 times. In the back of my mind, oh, I just think about yeah, all the food waste that's going on. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm sure they do things to mitigate that, but I don't care enough. Yeah, to make so the very perfect no, chicken wing or what have you. Yeah. And so I'm watching far fewer, if any, food documentaries or reading. Well, I did read the recent Michael Pollan one on drugs. Change your I can't mind. remember which one because he's got two. I wanted, to, I wanted to read the one on caffeine because I'm like going through this caffeine journey and trying not to drink coffee and whatever. So like, as that relates, kind of follow that. But I just, I think past me, if there was any kind of food documentary, whether it was pro or anti-veganism, I would have watched it. You know, it's just like that stuff was really, I was really passionate about it. And now I'm just like, I've kind of solidified mm-hmm. where I'm at with that. And I guess I'm just like, mm-hmm. I'm I, the people I'm following are more like thought leaders and people mm-hmm. talking about body image or, you know, fat phobia. It's, it's more of that stuff than the food stuff. I call it like the Anthony Bourdainification mm. of food media, where it was let's exotify and objectify in many ways and find the strangest, you know, strangest from my white centered perspective, you know, food culture or, or food experience that's out there and throw somebody in there and get a reaction about what it is. And, you know, that was just, we just did that for so long. Um, it just became so watered down. And we do grow food and I'm interested in herbalism and that's where some of my interest has gone. But honestly, that is a way mm-hmm. to feel more connected with the land and to gain skills that give me a sense of empowerment in the face of a rapidly changing society, you know, and I read too many dystopian <laughs> books, and, <laughs> you know, um, which, but yeah. Well, I asked Beth this question a while ago, which is cause you know, there's a lot of dystopian books and like post-apocalyptic TV shows. So I, I joked, I was like, I don't want to survive. Like, I want to be at the center of the bomb or the disease. Like, I just want to die. Like, if I don't have a grocery store, I don't want to have to do it. So do you think you're – and Beth said she would want to survive. She's like, I want to give it a go. I like to see how much I can suffer. That's like one of my natures. And so therefore, I want to be like, what can I make of that leftover shit dirt? You should ask this with every no. podcast guest. I would love to hear their thoughts on it. Um, I I would want to stay. And the only reason why I would want to stay is, um, well, you know, I want to be here for as long as the universe wants me to be here. And if I'm still here, then I'd like to find a way to be of service to my community and to, you know, somebody pointed out to me that the way that, you know, churches have changed so much, you know, I grew up in the church and we, we just drifted away from that. And now there's like the cult of personality on maybe we follow Instagram people that way. But I know that on a small scale, 
if it were just the people, the buy nothing group, the hyper local group that I are, that I know because I'm participating in my gift economy, that I would, I've been collecting resiliency tools to deal with the political stuff mm-hmm. we've gone through over the past six years, mental tools and also practical tools that to share that with my community feels like it would be the very least and perhaps the most honorific thing that I could do in a situation like that. And, um, and that scratches that itch that I have to be a helper and, um, and be of service. And so I'd like, I, I would be willing to offer that, but also well, if, I, if I happen to, to survive, I'll come find you and Beth. <laughs> Please come find us. We'll create a little commune. I mean, it's so funny that like, I remember joking about wanting to live in a commune. We've just been preparing for this. When I think about it on the long, you know, there are always extinction events. We're part of one right now. We just don't know where we are in that. And, you know, we've been watching these movies for a long time. We also have had the internet. We got internet in my house at, at age, you know, probably 15, 14 or something like that. And at some point I might have to live without the internet and I've already survived that. Yes. So I know I can. Well, yeah, I always joke again. because my uh, no, really no. good friends of ours uh, relocated to Austin a few years after we did. We, we lured them here and uh, we've known them since college. And they used to, we lived in Zilker and they lived off of South First, and she's very Southern. And the the thing is, there is you've got one plus. You basically you have one you're using, and you got two backups. She has like a fun Southern saying that goes with it that I can't even remember. And so I was like, okay, if the zombie if the apocalypse comes, I was like, I just have to figure out which I have the skill set I believe to make it across Lamar. <laughs> to get over to your house but it worked out great now we're neighbors and so i'm like i don't have to army crawl very far and i was like so your food supply is going to keep us going while i figure out how we're going to do it long term because <laughs> i don't keep hardly anything in my house like, yeah, I'm just like if my refrigerator is full it makes me nervous like i'm like there's too much stuff in here and so i'm always you, you know so i don't overkeep yeah. anything in the freezer the cabinet anything um because i'm just like oh it's just like why we don't we can't eat all that food at one time why do we need that ah, you know i just go crazy so so i'm a, i'm amazed thinking about the precedent of you know the pandemic yeah. actually gave us a place to practice this in some ways resource management and then I think back to, you know, the whole like colonizer idea of manifest destiny, right? I was obsessed with the Laura Ingalls Wilder books when I was a kid and this mm-hmm. pioneer thing that like, we'll go first, mm-hmm. first, I mean, using air quotes, right? Um, and it, like be willing to suffer to pave mm. the way for the people who come after us. And there's so much problematic stuff wrapped up in that. And also it's a good example of how we can resource from, from this trauma and pain and do some synthesizing of that and some equity work around that and like radical acknowledgement of privilege and, you know, all of that stuff on this ancestral thing that I don't know that I had anybody that was actually in a wagon going West. But when I was a kid, a lot of my foundational ideas were built around this like faux fantasy mm. of, of doing that. Right. And so like, when we talk pioneer about the apocalyptic stuff, you know, it's kind of like, being apocalypse pioneers were like going to make a new society or whatever. So this is also like a self critique of like, (laughs) of course you're going to that when in reality, you know, I think one of the truths is, you know, Mm -hmm. we need to listen to black women. Right. And so rather than me being the leader in the situation, it's also me being a follower and figuring out how to listen and how to make space and make way and share resources. And which is the stuff I try to do in my day to day life Mm -hmm. today. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So good. We are. Well, you and Beth are starting the new colony. Give a shout out to that (laughs) pandemic, right? You know, terrible time. So many people died. But it's like the tower is, you know, you think the death card is powerful. Well, the tower is not very far after that. And it's systems changing. And so much changed during those, you know, two, Mm. three years that um, we needed to change. And Mm -hmm. we did get to experience like, oh, here's this new way that we could record podcasts. Or here's this new way that we could make a living. You know, what I'm doing today did not exist, was not really conceivable to me 10 years ago. And it wouldn't have been possible without the pandemics that happened, the the changes that happened within me and around me due to the pandemic. And that's, it's just, it's kind of, it's pretty humbling to to recognize just how much we've been through and how much growth it has allowed us to do, to experience in our individual lives. I hope that has also been the case for the both of you. 
And I hope that this helps put yes. the death card yeah. in. Maybe just, you know, another way to look at it. Yes, it absolutely did. All right. I sure hope we gave you something new to think about today and helped you take one more step on your path to freeing yourself from diet culture. So be sure to subscribe to this podcast and follow us on Instagram at path underscore nutrition or join us on our online course foundations where you lay the foundation for a peaceful relationship with your body and food. See you next time. And thank you, Addie. We hope everyone goes to check out your your zine and everything that you're doing now. So thank you so much. Bye.